Our sermon this morning is from Romans chapter 15, verses 14 to 33. We've been working through the book of Romans uh, for quite a while now. And uh, you can find Romans 15 if you're using a pew Bible on page 893. So turn there in your Bible, on the app on your phone. You can read along on the screen or in your, your bulletin. This passage, starting with Romans chapter, 14, chapter 15, verse 14, uh, kind of marks the beginning of the end of the book of Romans. So it's kind of sad. We're going we're gonna to say goodbye to Paul's letter to the Romans in just a few uh, short weeks. Um, if you'll remember, uh, way back when we started, we kind of gave an outline of the, the book of Romans. The first three chapters um, deal a lot with uh, the, the idea of condemnation, that, that uh, God's wrath is coming against the sin of humanity, that we are unable to accomplish our salvation and come into God's presence. That's the first three chapters. Chapters 3 through 5 is about justification, that, that God, th- those same sinners that cannot earn and accomplish their own salvation, God saves them apart from their merit by his grace, by sending Jesus to die for sin, satisfy the wrath of God. Anyone who turns away from their sin and trusts in Jesus uh, can be saved by God's grace. That's Romans 3 through 5. Romans 6 through 8 uh, is about sanctification and the Christian life and how uh, God gives us a new life and a new heart and new desires to love him and to obey him. We're, we're no longer obeying uh, out of obligation like a slave or a servant, but now as Christians with new lives, new natures, new hearts, we're obeying um, because we want to, because we get to uh, as children of God. Romans 9 through 11 is about the nation of Israel Uh, God chose the nation of Israel to be in covenant relationship with him. God chose certain people within the nation of Israel to to trust him and to be reconciled to him. God eventually, uh, when Jesus comes, he invites Gentiles uh, to be grafted into the nation of Israel and to enjoy God's covenant blessings along with the people of Israel. And one day in the future, God will save the nation of Israel and kind of gather in uh, a a massive amount of ethnic Israelites uh, to to be saved and to enjoy his salvation. Romans 12 through 15 is all about application, just the the art and science of the Christian life, right? How Christians are to relate to one another, to non-Christians, to the world, to the the government, right? It's kind of like in light of all of the doctrine that we've established in in chapters 1 through 11, here is now how you are to live your life as a Christian. And then that brings us to Romans 15 and 16, which is the conclusion, kind of Paul's, you know, uh, final remarks to the church in Rome. He talks about his plans for ministry that God has called him to give his life to. He talks about his plans to come and visit uh, the believers there in Rome, and he gives some personal greetings to some specific people at the church in Rome. So that's going to be what we kind of cover for the next, uh, next few weeks in, in the rest of 15 and chapter 16. But I'm going to read through uh, these 20 verses here. And then we'll pray, and then we'll just get to work uh, hearing what, uh, what God is, is telling us through these, this, this latter half of the chapter. Starting in verse 14, it says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. 
In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ." And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Verse 22, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings... They ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and I have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you in Rome. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege that it is to come before you, open our Bibles, written in our language, that we can own in our own homes without having to share them with other people in the church or without uh, being afraid that someone from the government's going to come arrest us, right? It's, it's, a, it's an incredible privilege to follow Christ where, where we are in this time and place in, in history. And so we're grateful, and we pray that we could take advantage of it. We pray that we could leverage moments like this to gather and read and listen and study and pray and meditate and contemplate. We pray that as we do, that it would help us to follow Jesus and to glorify your name. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, start in verse 14. Remember, this is kind of the beginning of the end. This is a, there's, a, there's a big chapter. I mean, there's not a chapter break, but essentially there's a, there's a topical break right before this, this verse. This is the beginning of the conclusion of the book. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. He says, you guys are killing it. Right, the, the church in Rome is crushing it. I am so grateful for you. I'm really pleased with what I'm hearing about what's happening in the church there. You're a good church, a faithful church. If someone emailed me and said, where should I go to church in Rome? I would say your church because you're doing a great job. And especially when Paul kind of considers some of the other churches that he's writing to, he's thinking, man, those, you know, some of the churches that Paul's writing to are just a mess, right? 
um, in Galatia. After Paul leaves Galatia, these false teachers come and they say, uh, Paul's gospel is not true. Uh, In order to be saved, everyone needs to be circumcised. And grown men were getting up and standing in line to be circumcised with no anesthesia. And Paul hears about it and is like, what is going on? You guys are crazy. That is the, uh, that's absurd, and it's not what I was preaching to you. The church in uh, Thessalonica was the rapture church, right? Like, they love the rapture. When's it going to happen? What's going to happen? They were quitting their jobs and standing in their, sitting in the lawn chairs, looking up at the sky, expecting the rapture to come any minute. Paul's like, what's, what's going on with you guys? The, the church in Corinth, uh, was just all kinds of just, you know, sexual immorality, divisions, tribes, factions. People are, suing, people are suing each other in the secular courts, bringing disrepute upon the name of Christ. Take, they would ce- celebrate communion, and they would come and get drunk in the middle of the worship service on the communion wine. It was a mess. It was a to- so Paul's like, thank goodness that at least one church has their head on straight. Like, this is, this is so thank you. I'm satisfied about you. You are full of goodness, full of knowledge. You're able to instruct one another. Praise God that we have a good church that I am am writing to. And the application that we can take from verse 14 as Christians is to uh, be intentional, right? We should be intentional to be actively looking for and cultivating awareness of the evidences of grace in the lives of people around us, right? The, the natural tendency of the human heart is to be keenly aware of all of the sins and, and shortcomings uh, that, that, that are, you know, in ever and around us while, while being painfully oblivious to our own sins and, and shortcomings, which is why Jesus has to say, make sure to take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of someone else's, right? He's saying the human heart has this weird you know, uncanny ability to just, to just be unaware of its own sins and yet like Superman laser vision to be able to see sins the size of a gnat a mile a- a- away. And so Paul is saying, push back against that natural tendency, right? The tendency to be, to be looking for and, and hyper aware of other people's sins and shortcomings. Instead, actively actively look for and intentionally cultivate awareness of grace in the lives of people uh, around, around you. Right? Instead of saying, you know, that person's late all the time, which is rude to the people that, uh, that, that have to wait for them. You could kind of look at them and think, all right, well, that's, they should work on that. But by God's grace, they're present. They're, they, they listen well. They care, they ask questions, they make eye contact. Praise God for this evidence of grace in their, their lives, right? That person lets their children run wild after church and, and they need to keep a closer eye on them. Maybe true. Or you could think, you know, praise God that they are leveraging this time after church to engage with other grown-ups and disciple them and encourage them. And I'm grateful for that evidence of grace in their, in their lives, Right? Uh, you know, look at your own spouse, right? My spouse uh, does X, Y, and Z, all these things I don't want him to do. But if we're honest, and if we can kind of be humble, then we'd also say, but they also do A and B and C, all of these things that I'm really grateful for, that I probably should not take for granted, 
So if we want to be like Paul, if we want to apply verse 14, we should try to be satisfied and grateful for all of the good things that we see in the people around us instead of being angry uh, and resentful. And when, we, and when we do that, when you look for the good in other people and when you're grateful for it, you'll find that your relationships improve. I, uh, I, I, did, I looked online uh, this, this week, uh, did, did some research, and there are some, some commonly recognized factors from counselors and psychologists and even divorce attorneys, um, that there's some commonly recognized factors that uh, are likely predictors that a couple uh, might get divorced in the future. And there's a handful of them, and different ones kind of say different ones are more important, but the one that almost every source that I could find seems to say is the number one factor that is a predictor of divorce is contempt. You, You have contempt for your spouse mad at them, you're annoyed by them, you're not willing to forgive them, you're not going to try to see the good in them. Instead, I'm going to nitpick and find everything that's wrong with them, and then I'm going to bring that up over and over and over. I'm never going to let them forget all of the bad things that I see in their like, cont- contempt. The number one factor that leads to, to divorce, that leads to relationships being, being fractured. And so Paul is saying, don't do that. Right? Don't uh, be hyper aware of and, and uh, have a long memory of sin and shortcomings, but do that with evidence of, of grace. It's easy to stay mad at someone when you're dwelling on everything that's wrong with them because you stop seeing them as a person and you, all you see is their flaws. But it's difficult to stay mad at someone when you're actively looking for and thinking about evidence of grace in their lives because it humanizes them. So don't look for the bad in others. Look for the good in others and dwell on that. But that's one side of the coin, verse 14. Here's the other side. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace of God given by me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the the Gentiles. So he says, uh, yes, I'm satisfied about you. I'm grateful for you and all the evidence of grace in your life, in your church, but I have had to write very boldly about some things. So as, as intentional as I am to see all of the good in you, I'm also bold and willing to confront sin and folly and error in your life when I see it. You're a good church, solid church, faithful church, but there are still some things where you need to be instructed. And when I see those, I am not going to be, uh, you know, unwilling to uh, address them, which is essentially what the whole book of Romans has been, right? It's been Paul addressing some points in the church in Rome very boldly, right? So we need to be uh, actively looking for and cultivating awareness of evidences of grace in people's lives, and we need to be careful and discerning and bold and willing to confront sin and error, both at the same time. Right? We don't, it's, it's very easy to err on one side or the other here. Right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think the best of everyone around me. I'm going to be charitable, but then you forget to be discerning. And you become overly tolerant of things that God himself does not tolerate. Right? People are openly 
committing sin, believing false doctrine. They're counting on us to address them, confront them, admonish them, correct them, and we don't because we're afraid or we're passive. Right? That's kind of the one erring on this side. Erring on this side is I'm going to be bold, I'm going to instruct, I'm going to correct. But we forget to be kind and gracious and, and to see the good in others. We dwell on the, the bad and we start to berate and belittle everyone and ruin relationships. Probably end up jumping from one relationship to the next because we're too critical of everyone. So verse 14, see the good in others and try to dwell on that. But verse 15, address and confront boldly uh, when necessary. Verse 16, so it says, written you by boldly uh, on some points because of the grace of, that's given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Paul says, God has called me, Paul, to do ministry among the Gentiles, to plant churches, visit churches, write letters to churches, teach and disciple people in churches, to follow Jesus specifically among the Gentile world. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was a Jewish Messiah, Jewish Savior, sent to Jewish people in the nation of Israel. All the disciples were Jewish. Much of their ministries were among Jewish people. And Paul says, you know what? I'm going to the Gentiles. I'm going to take the gospel to people who have never heard it, right? No category for God, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, right? None of that. I'm going to go take the gospel to people who have never heard it. Paul did not limit his ministry to people who looked like him, thought like him, talked like him, acted like him, voted like him. He's saying, I'm going to go to people, I'm going to cross cultural boundaries, as it were. And I'm going to preach the gospel to people, right, to, to the outsiders and the misfits, right? People that the civilized world has kind of looked at and said, they're not like us. They're not religiously proper and, and all put together like we are. And Paul says, I'm going to go to them. I'm not going to withdraw and retreat away from people that need to hear the gospel. I'm going to press in and go toward them. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. So Paul's, uh, God has called Paul to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of, of God. So he says, uh, I, this, this ministry that I'm doing among the Gentiles is, is a priestly ministry. Paul says, I'm a priest, essentially. There's a doctrine that came out of the Reformation that was lost to us in the Middle Ages uh, called the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, right? The idea is that all, every single Christian who trusts in Jesus shares in Christ's priestly status. There's no special class of people who mediate the knowledge and presence and forgiveness of Christ to the rest of believers. Every single believer has the right to uh, come directly to God through Christ. Every single believer has the right to read and interpret and apply the teachings of Scripture. We don't have to go through uh, a, a priest or a, uh, some sort of spiritual elite person. You don't have the, the sacred priests over here and then all of the secular, regular people over, over here. That was the, the practice of the Catholic Church for centuries was, was this kind of, you know, varsity JV, sacred, secular, priests, regular people. 
And don't you regular people dare try to come to God on your own without going through us. We're the ones who, who mediate and disperse all of that stuff. And the reformers say, no, no, regular people with their Bible that was, that was translated into their language, regular people can come directly to God. They don't need a priest. Every Christian is a priest. That's one aspect of the priesthood of all believers. And the other aspect is, is this. Um, priests in the Old Testament, their primary responsibility was handling and overseeing and executing uh, sacrifices and offerings, right? They're in the tabernacle, they're in the temple, and they are kind of overseeing that process of killing animals and offering them as sacrifices to God. And so Paul is saying, I have a priestly ministry. I am one of the, one of the priests. I'm, I'm a member of the priesthood of all believers, but specifically, the priestly service of the gospel that I am doing is uh, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He says, I, I, as a priest, I give offerings to God. Now, the New Testament uh, speaks of a, a number of different kinds of sacrifices and offerings that Christians, that Christian priests, as it were, um, can, can offer. One, you know, Romans 12, the sacrifice of yourself, Right? Present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So one of the things that we as priests offer to God as a sacrifice is ourselves, our, our, our lives, our worship. Philippians 4 refers to financial gifts. And he says those financial gifts are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice that is pleasing to God. So another sacrifice or offering that Christians who are priests uh, can, can offer is that of financial gifts. Another is the sacrifice of good works and obedience. Hebrews 13 says, do not neglect to do good for such sacrifices or offerings uh, are pleasing to God. So we can, the, the offerings and sacrifices we as priests can bring to God ourselves, our worship, our money, our good works, our obedience, or here in, in Romans 15, uh, other people. Right? Paul says, the, sacrifice, the offering that I'm bringing to God to bring to him as a sacrifice that I'm hoping is acceptable is the offering of Gentile people, people who didn't know Christ, and I came to them and preached the gospel to them, and they trusted in Jesus, and they were reconciled to God, and then I discipled them towards spiritual maturity, and then they were put into a church where they hear the gospel preached regularly. Those people, those human beings are essentially an offering from me to God. As a priest, I have a number of different offerings that I offer to God, one of which is human beings that I evangelize, share the gospel with, disciple, and, and present to God mature uh, in, in Christ. So Christians as priests can go to people, share the gospel with them, see them saved, and then see them welcomed into the presence of God. And those people are an offering to God that we, that we give to him. In verse 17, he says, In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. So Paul says, I've been doing this priestly ministry of seeing Gentiles get converted and saved and, and uh, presenting them as an offering to God. 
And frankly, I've been doing a pretty good job at it. Like, if I, don't, if I do say so myself. Like, I have reason to be proud of how good of a job that I have done. I'm a, I've been a faithful Christian, faithful evangelist, faithful pastor, faithful missionary, shared the gospel, led people to Christ. I have reason to be proud of what I have done as a Christian, as a minister of the gospel. But, even though I have reason to be proud of my work for God... I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Right? So I, Paul, have reason to be proud. I have as impressive of a resume as anyone that you will ever see, that you will ever meet. And yet, even I, with this star-studded resume that I have, I consider that resume to be garbage useless, worthless. I don't care about it. The only thing that matters to me is knowing Christ. And the only thing that matters that I have done is that which Christ has done through me to bring the Gentiles to himself. And specifically, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and by deed. Meaning both of those things matter. Right? Jesus is ministering through me, Paul, to the Gentiles to draw them to himself in two ways, by what I say and by what I do. And you need both, right? You have to share the gospel and you have to live it out. If you, if you build a food pantry, if you set up an after-school program for at-risk youth, if you uh, go to nursing homes and take people Christmas presents, if you build clean water wells in Africa. You do all of that, but you never share the gospel with anyone. You never tell anyone about the good news of what Christ has done for them so that they can be saved from God's wrath. If your life is marked by deeds, but not by words, then that is not gospel ministry. And and it's not the mission of the church. On the other hand, if you proclaim the gospel, share with everyone you know, you're speaking at conference, they invite you to half time at the Super Bowl to share the gospel to tens of millions of people who are watching, and while all that's happening, you're embezzling money, or you're cheating on your taxes, or you're beating your wife, right? If, you're, if your life is marked by words, but not deeds, then you have missed the mark and failed miserably, and God is not pleased. And so Paul says, it's not me, it's nothing that I did, it's what Christ did through me, going to the Gentiles to do gospel ministry, both in word, what I say about Christ, and indeed how I live in response to the gospel of, of Christ. So that... From Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. He says, God has called me to the Gentiles, right? I was in, I was, I'm Jewish. I was initially based out of Jerusalem. Uh, I think we have a map. Can we see uh, Lucy and Zeke? See if we can skip forward a couple slides to where there's a map. Um, Paul says, I was, keep going to like the end of all the words here. We'll have to go back. Sorry, it's, I'm, I'm, it's uh, there we go. So Paul says, I was initially based out of Jerusalem, way down here in Palestine. 
And I have uh, fulfilled my ministry all over, all the way up to Illyricum. Illyricum, so he's writing to the church in Rome, way up here, top left. Illyricum is kind of, you know, right, right here around Dalmatia, Macedonia, kind of to the, you know, just east of, of Rome. So he says, I've preached the gospel all over here, like all this area here. I've found strategic hubs to go and share the gospel, plant churches so that those uh, hub churches could send uh, Christians out to the outlying regions to share the gospel. I've done all of that. And the reason why I've done, the reason why I did that, the reason why I've gone into all of these places to share the gospel, instead of staying down in Jerusalem, down there in the bottom right-hand corner, the reason I did that, verse 20, I've made it my ambition, you can just leave, leave the, the map up here for, for a minute, um, I'll let you know when it's time to go back, but verse 20, I have made it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So Paul says, I, my calling, my niche, what I'm doing, I am a missionary, uh, a frontier church planter. That's the, that's the ministry that God gave to me, to preach the gospel, not, among, not in the nation of Israel, but among the Gentiles. Not where Christ has already been named, but where he has not already been named. Now, is it, are there people whose calling is to preach Christ where Christ has already been named? Are there people who God has called to build on someone else's foundation? Yeah, I should hope so. They're called pastors. That's what I do. So if that's not a legit calling, then I should quit my job and find another line of, of work. But the fact of the matter is, it is totally okay and legitimate to preach the gospel in places where there is already a gospel presence because the kingdom of God needs that as well. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, uh, what, what about Apollos? What about Paul? These are servants that you believe the gospel from as the Lord assigned to each their respective ministries. I, Paul, I planted. because That's what I do. I build the foundation. But Apollos came along behind me and he watered. Because that's what he does. He likes to build on someone else's foundation. But either way, whether it was I who was planting or Apollos who was watering, it's God who gave the growth. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So God calls some people to go where the gospel has never been heard, and he calls others to go where it has been heard. He calls some to a ministry that's heavy on evangelizing the lost. He calls others to ministries that are heavy on discipling believers. Some to plant churches, some to be pastors and members of churches. Some to do ministry among the Gentiles, some to do ministry among the nation of Israel. And the point is, there are countless different ways to serve in the body of Christ, and God calls every believer based on desire and opportunity and, and you know, um, affirmation from other believers and just the way that they're wired. God calls every believer to a unique ministry that's suited to their gifting. And our job is not to say, well, not to pigeonhole it and say, we all have to do this one thing, or I'm jealous of that person. I want to do what they're doing. Rather, our job is to take the calling that God has given us at that moment and be faithful to it and to glorify God in it. Verse 21, he says, 
But, at la- but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is a sight he's quoting, citing from uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 52, which is uh, the, the end of chapter 50, the end of Isaiah 52 through the rest of Isaiah 53 is kind of this classic Old Testament passage you're probably familiar with about Jesus, about the Messiah and his giving his life uh, as a sacrifice for sin, you know, language like he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, he's like a lamb led to the slaughter, the punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him, by his wounds we are healed. These are all in that passage that Paul is citing from. So it's a passage specifically about Jesus, the Messiah, and his sacrifice for sin. And in that same passage is what Paul cites here, where he says, part of what Jesus is going to do when he sacrifices for sin is that he's going to invite anyone and everyone from all over the world to come to him, right? Those who have never been told of him will see. Those who have never heard will understand. It's not just an exclusive thing for the religious elite people in Israel anymore. Now it's for anyone and everyone all over the world. The gospel will go out beyond the nation of Israel, to the Gentiles. Gentiles will be brought in, and they will be grafted in to the people of God. Verse 22, This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. The reason why I've been so often hindered in coming to you is because you're way up here in Rome, I'm based way down here out of Jerusalem, and I've been making missionary journeys all over the place around in here. So I haven't been able to make it all the way up to you there because I've been planting churches and discipling believers all the way around uh, in, in the, the Mediterranean area. But now, verse 23, now, since I no longer have any work in these regions, meaning I've I've done it. Like, I've planted all the churches that we strategically determined needed to be planted in order for those churches to send out more believers and more missionaries to other outlying regions. That, it's, it, now I can look, I can kind of do something else other than spend time planting and raising up, planting churches, raising up leaders. So since I have no longer, no more work to do in these regions, and since I've longed to come to you for many years now, The whole time I've been planting churches in and around these areas, I've been wishing and hoping that I can make it to Rome. I want to get out there. I've heard of you, and I want to get there. And since I've always wanted to, and since I now have time to, I hope to see you in passing, verse 24, as I go to Spain. And this one's a little tight. Is there there another map, the next one, Lucy, that's maybe a little spread out? Okay, so, yeah, that's Jerusalem is kind of way down there. Uh, Rome is kind of, uh, you know, the boot. Um, and then uh, Illyricum is kind of this, this dark area right here. So he says, I've been as far as Illyricum, and then everywhere around in there, but I've been wanting to get to you up in Rome. And so I hope, I hope to get to you in Rome, and I hope to get to you in Rome on my way to Spain, which is way over here. So he's saying, like, I mean, this is, this would, I mean, that, that's the end of the known world for Paul and his contemporaries, is to go to Spain. That's, that, if you go west of Spain, it's, the only land west of Spain is Virginia Beach. Like that, that's the next thing. 
So he's saying, I am, I'm, I, my ambition is to go as far as I can to the end of the world to find anyone and everyone that does not know Christ. And I want to, I mean, this is, he's a, you know, you know, like the travel junkie, right? The lives that, you know, guy who goes everywhere. He can, his passport's got all the stamps in it. Been to every country you can think of. The, the evangelism junkie, right? No seat next to him on an airplane is safe because he's going to share the gospel with you. Right? Every tip at a restaurant has a track in it. You get on an elevator with him, you're like, man, he's going to do it. I know it's going to do it. Right? That Paul, so he would like love to travel. He wanted to go anywhere. Like that you could not pitch a place to him in the world that he would say, nah, it's too dangerous. It's too far. I don't want to go. He wants to go as far as he possibly can. That was Paul to share the gospel with anyone and everyone that he possibly could. I hope to see you in passing as I go all the way to Spain to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. I think, we, Lucy, we can probably skip back to the words and go back to uh, verse 24. So he says, my long-term plan is to go all the way to Spain, short-term along the way, is to stop by in Rome along the way to Spain so that I can stay, recover, be refreshed, stock up, fuel up, use the bathroom, right? Get sent out uh, to continue on my way to Spain. So he's like, so the, the letter to the Romans is essentially him saying, Get, it, it's, a, it's a support letter. It's, it's Paul saying, save up some money now because I'm going st- I'm, I'm to stop by soon. I'm going to Spain, but I've got enough money to make it about to Rome, and then I need you to give me money so that I can continue on my way to Spain. If you aspire to be a missionary, right, or if you are going to go on a short-term mission trip and you're going to send a support letter to someone, let the book of Romans be a helpful template and example for you. I've gotten a lot of support letters. Hello, I'm, my name is Ben. I have a lot going on, so I'm going to go on a missions trip. I need money, please send it here, right? Support letters, if, if Paul is an example, support letters should be packed full of meaningful, dense theology, Right? who God is, what Christ has done to save me, right? I want to see lost people reconciled to God. Heaven and hell hang in the balance. Real, dense, God-centered, Christ-exalting theology. That's what, Paul's, that's what Paul's support letters were. 16 chapters of real... I mean, if you, if you, if you draft a support letter and send it to a marketing guru, and he says, ah, you might want to trim it down a little bit, it's a little too heavy, it's a little too dense, just point him to the book of Romans and say, I don't know that it is. I think that, I think that theology matters, and when I'm asking people to support my ministry, it mat- they, they need to know what my ministry is and what it's about. So I hope to see you um, as I'm on my way to Spain, the end of the world, as far as Paul is concerned to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a little while. Verse 25, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. Actually, I changed my mind, Lucy. Can we go back to the, to the map one more time? The one with all of the, the words on it, the, that's a little more zoomed in. So he says, you are there in Rome. I am planning to go to Rome by way, or planning to go to Spain by way of Rome. And... He's saying, right now, I can't come right now. Let's do a couple more, couple more forward until we get to the map. So he says, your way up here in Rome, I'm going to come 
through Rome all the way to Spain. But right now I can't yet because I have to go back to Jerusalem, where I'm from. And when I come back to Jerusalem, I have to take uh, money to them from Macedonia and from Achaia. Those two areas there. He says, at present I'm going to Jerusalem to bring aids to the saints. Verse 26, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So I'm going to come to you to get money for me to make it to Spain. But before I do, I'm going to take money that I got from Macedonia and Achaia and take it back to the saints in, right, in Jerusalem. They need money for Bibles and books and to renovate their church buildings. They're poor. They need money for food, right? They need money to, like, uh, organize how they're not going to get arrested and killed for their faith by people who are uh, hostile to the gospel. And so all these people in Macedonia and Achaia have more money than they need, so they have given me money and said, go take it to the people in Jerusalem who have less money than they need. Verse 27, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. Those Christians in Macedonia and Achaia were pleased and happy to give money to the Christians in Jerusalem, but frankly... They owe it. It's, it's, if I'm being honest, they, they owe that money to the people in Jerusalem, and here is why. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Meaning, Gentile Christians in places like Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, right? They recognize rightly that they are deeply indebted to the poor, suffering, impoverished Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Because like we established, Jesus is a Jewish Messiah who came to the Jewish people to fulfill the covenant promises that God made to the Jewish people in Israel. And by God's grace in Christ, those covenant promises were flung out, extended out to all, everywhere in the world, every Gentile. But because of that, Every Gentile, including me and you, every Gentile who comes to know Christ from the first century on, all the way until Jesus returns, every single Gentile that trusts in Jesus has been welcomed in, invited in to the spiritual Israel, uh, as, as it were. And as such, we are deeply indebted to the people of Israel because they shared their Messiah with us. They said, you, you Gentiles can have and, and enjoy and benefit from our Jewish Messiah. The nation of Israel was spiritually rich with this wonderful Messiah who could save people from their sins, and they willingly shared him with the world. And now, if a situation presents itself where there are Gentile Christians who are materially rich, like we are here in America... And there are other Christians, especially Jewish Christians in other parts of the world, who are materially poor and suffering. It's only fitting that those materially wealthy Gentile Christians give generously and willingly and sacrificially to provide for the material need of those suffering Christians. Right, the application should be readily evident. If you're not giving regularly to your local church, I would encourage you to start doing that. Even if it's, even start small. Give a dollar, a dollar a week. If you're not giving regularly. If you are giving regularly, 
but you're giving less than, say, 10% of your income, I would encourage you to consider how you might be able to increase it. And if you are giving regularly, but you're giving some amount less than what would represent a meaningful sacrifice for you in your life, then I would also encourage you to consider how you might be able to, to increase it. Jewish Christians save their Savior with Gentile Christians, and now it's only fitting that Gentile Christians share their money with Jewish Christians. We can go back to the words now, back to verse 28. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. So I'm, I'm going from Macedonia and Achaia back to Jerusalem. After I give them the money, I'm going to go to Spain, and I'm going to stop by Rome on my way there. At least that's Paul's plan as he envisioned it. But God had other plans. When Paul gets to Jerusalem to take the money to the saints there, he's promptly arrested by uh, Jewish non-Christians who were hostile to the gospel. You can read about it in Acts 21. And eventually he appeals to Caesar and he is sent from, he, he actually, ironically, he gets arrested and he's like, oh, I'll never, get, I'll never make it to Rome. But then in Acts 25, the people who arrested him and imprisoned him send him to Rome to stand trial there. So Paul eventually does make it to Rome, albeit as a federal prisoner in custody, as opposed to a missionary who's going on his own, uh, on his own accord. Verse 29, uh, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing in Christ. So Paul's saying, my hope, my expectation is that when I get to you, you'll be encouraged by me, I'll be encouraged by you. And then in verse 30 and following, it's the final appeal. This is kind of right, the, the, the end of the book of Romans, essentially, before we get a bunch of names. In verse 16, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Pray for me. I'm asking you, Christians in Rome, pray for me. Pray that I, verse 31, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, which, like we just established, actually didn't happen. <laughs> he wasn't delivered. He, he, was, he was arrested by them and imprisoned by them and deported by them. But pray that that wouldn't happen. And pray that my service for Jerusalem, the money I'm bringing them, uh, will be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. So pray that the money I bring serves its intended effect. Pray that I could uh, avoid, that I could kind of escape persecution when I'm there so that I can come and visit you in Rome. And then the final, the final benediction. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. All right, may the, the God who sent Jesus Christ to give us peace with him when we were his enemies, the God who gave us peace with one another when there was enmity and hostility between us, the God who gives us a deep and abiding internal spiritual peace that transcends all understanding. May the God of peace be with you. Don't overlook how incredible it is that we as Christians get to have peace with God and peace with one another. It's a miracle that we 
are no longer at war with God, but that we are at peace with God, and that we are no longer at odds with one another, but that we are at peace with one another. And that, that peace, that reconciliation, both vertically to God and horizontally to one another through Christ, is what we celebrate when we take communion together. Right? We come to the communion table and we're essentially saying, I trust in Jesus. Jesus has forgiven me of my sins. Right? I have been reconciled to God through Christ and his death on the cross. And I am a member of this covenant community. Right? I uh, am, am committed to encouraging other believers and to helping them to follow Jesus. The God of peace has given me peace with him and peace with his people. And then we eat and drink to celebrate and remember that reality. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. As often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus, we invite you to celebrate communion with us. And come forward down the middle when the music uh, starts playing. Receive the elements. Take a moment. Pray. Do business with God. Repent of your sin. And then eat and drink as a way of rejoicing and celebrating the glory of, of Christ together. If you're not a Christian, we would ask you to not take communion because the Bible teaches against that. It actually says you'd be eating and drinking judgment on yourself. So instead of, instead of taking communion, we would invite you to take Christ, to trust in Jesus so that you can take communion with us next time. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the music team to come up and, and lead us in some music, and, and we can celebrate the, the sacrament of communion together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel of peace. Peace with God, peace with one another. We thank you that you have saved us from our sin. And we pray that we could be faithful to the task that you have called us to, to share the gospel and to make disciples. We pray that you would help us to do that joyfully as a response uh, to the grace that we have freely received. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.